you know, I think we're definitely uh, hardwired to be with people. You know, uh, yeah. anything from an attachment framework really tells us that we are wired to connect. And, and it's we're inbuilt with that attachment and that need for connection. And really what gets in the way is our parents. <laughs> our parents get in the way and they stop that proper hardwiring of, of that really innate natural ability to connect. But we have that inbuilt. Uh, so, so we are uh, animals that need attachment and connection. And that makes us feel safe. Uh, and what goes wrong is when we don't feel safe in those connections, that things start to go a bit haywire and we start looking for that in other places if we're brave enough. Sometimes we're, uh, we avoid them if we've been hurt too much. Awesome. Cool. Well, Andrew, thank you so much for joining me on the Getting Mental podcast. It's a pleasure to have you here. Thanks a lot. Thanks for inviting me. No problems at all. So I guess a, a good place to start, and it's a very broad question, is what's your story? Where does Andrew come from? How did he get here? And, and what's he doing? Yeah, that, that, that is a, a big question. I think uh, more than likely I sort of fell in love with psychology, uh, I think, in year 11, when I was in year 11 and 12. And I think it That's very early. Uh, I think it was Robin Williams inspired, actually. Wow. Uh, and some of the roles he played, uh, which got me super interested in. I just started looking into it and uh, fell in love with her and then, you know, went, went to uni and did psychology. Um, and the journey sort of started from there. Um, and, and now I've been doing it for 25 years um, and still love it. That's the brief version of me. <laughs> I, re I remember in, um, and I want to get back to that as well, but I remember in uh, year 11, um, everyone used to come to me as the guy that would offer advice. Like uh, they'd be like, what do you think about this? Or my partner did this or this happened. Mm. And when I was 17, I was always that guy because I always had this skill to like look on people's situations saying, hey, maybe this or maybe this, or maybe this. Were you that similar guy in high school? Yeah, yeah, that's interesting that you said that. As you were saying, I was thinking, oh, yeah, that was me as well. Because <laughs> in, in high school, yeah, I was the guy that you'd come to and have a chat with. And, and so people would come and have a chat and they'd want to talk about things. Uh, and, and I think I developed the skill back then just to listen. Yeah. And so people had that space to talk about things and uh, get things off their chest. Uh, and I don't think I was that smart back then because I didn't think I had that many solutions. So it made it easy because mostly people just want to have a chat. They don't actually want you to give them advice. Uh, so, so yeah, I was that guy as well. And what, what is that? Like why do you think people... And it's, I mean, the answer to me is it feels obvious and maybe a silly question, but I think it's important to talk about why do people just want to have a chat? Like, is it because people are more lonely than ever, um, even back, you know, 20, 30 years ago, or is it just because that's who we are as people? Like there's a book called The Social Animal by mm -hmm. Elliot Aronson, who's a social psychologist, and he talks about our innate need to be social, hence the social animal. So is that just who we are wired to be, or is it because we're lonely or both? <laughs> Look, I, th I think it's a combination of both. And I think, you know, I think we're definitely uh, hardwired to be with people. You know, uh, yeah. anything from an attachment framework really tells us that we are wired to connect. And, and it's we're inbuilt with that attachment and that need for connection. And really what gets in the way is our parents. <laughs> our parents get in the way and they stop that proper hardwiring of, of that really innate natural ability to connect. But we have that inbuilt. Uh, so, so we are uh, animals that need attachment and connection, and that makes us feel safe. 
Uh, and what goes wrong is when we don't feel safe in those connections, that things start to go a bit haywire and we start looking for that in other places if we're brave enough. Sometimes we're, uh, we avoid them if we've been hurt too much. But in general, wow. we are animals who, you know, people who need connection. So speaking into that with your practice and what you're doing from a, a psychologist's point of view, is that the, the core of trauma? Is that the core of what people are suffering from, that they, they see other people? There's a, there's a quote by this guy from hundreds of years ago, and he says something like, uh, people are suffering, like because he had been gone through so much shit with people. Is that what you see is the core for people who are experiencing trauma? They see other people as painful or as something that is suffering, and they pull away from it. And in some ways, they might create multiple personalities or they might um, split their personalities or have ADHD or things like that. But are people and the suffering from people the core? Look, I, th I think what we do to each other is the core. You know, wow. and I think we are not great at being kind, uh, yeah. kind to others or kind to self. And I think that can create uh, a lot of suffering. And I think what people do to us it can often be a very primal cause to our suffering. And, yeah. and that suffering is often made worse when it is someone who we are supposed to love, trust, uh, and feel safe with. So if yeah. a parent does harm, uh, you know, someone sat close to us who we're supposed to feel safe to does harm, that has a much significantly bigger impact than if a stranger does harm, depending on the harm, of course. But, but when it's someone who we're supposed to feel safe with does that harm, it actually has a significant and long-term impact. And, and often uh -huh. uh, harm that is done to us and the trauma we experience, for me, and, and I'll talk about this when we talk about EMDR in a bit more detail, is really the cause of symptoms. And uh, you mentioned ADHD. I don't think uh, ADHD technically is trauma-related. I think some trauma can create symptoms that are ADHD-like and you will look ADHD-like. And there are some things like, you know, if you have a head injury that impacts your frontal lobe, you'll, you may end up with ADHD. Uh, but trauma will make ADHD at a core worse. Uh, Something so neurodevelopmental disorders like ADHD and autism, trauma will make those worse. So it's not like you just have ADHD or you just have autism. Trauma will make them worse. So, uh, so resolving trauma can be very helpful. I think my reference point for the ADHD stuff is um, there's a, a very well-known psychologist, um, uh, uh, Gabor Mate. Yeah. Do you know Gabor him? Mate. Gabor Mate. He talks about um, the, the analogy that he gave, and I don't know if it's backed in science, um, but the reason I brought ADHD up is because he says that when a, a child goes through an environment that they don't want to be in, that... So, for example, like this is the analogy he gives on the Joe Rogan experience. He says to Joe Rogan, like, what if I started to, you know, abuse you, like hit you or punch you? And then what if I start to, um, you know, what, what would you do? What would your response be? He goes, I would either fight back or I would leave the room. Yeah. And then Gabriel Mate says, well, then what do you do if you can't do either of those? You split yourself internally in a way. Mm -hmm. And attention deficit hyperactive disorder is where you make that split in your mind, your attention is always going around and around and around because you're distracted by the environment or the environment is too intense. You're just like, okay, I can't control something right now. I need to, I need to flip that switch, right? And if we look at the adaption principle, which is that 
there's things that humans can adapt to and they can't, one of the things that we can't adapt to is a lack of certainty or lack of control, I should say. And so we, we will always do anything to get control back. You look at some of the poorest countries in the world, whether, you know, how poor they are, they'll find a way inside the realm of that poorness or that, you know, low socioeconomic status of, you know, not having resources to find control and autonomy in some way. Yeah, I think you're spot on. And you know, I'm a huge fan of Gabor. And Gabor yeah. does have that argument where he does talk about the impact of trauma, especially early developmental trauma, uh, yeah. and uh, the impact from that early attachment trauma in that environment. Because he really talks about, you know, and within that framework, he does actually talk about some subsets, really small subsets of ADHD and autism actually being trauma-formed, you know, yeah. and that that early attachment trauma can create splits. It can actually fragment your personality and those fragments turn into parts and those parts can become very hypervigilant. And that, so you've got a, a part that's scanning the environment all the time or, or a part that is getting you not to talk or, or a part that gets you to fight and be aggressive. You know, when, when you've got someone who, for example, has really significant issues with anger, is really violent. That person has uh, an early attachment framework where they develop that angry part to protect themselves. Uh, Anger uh, and aggression was a protective part and it it would have served them in their early childhood really, really well. As an adult, it's not as helpful, right? But you've really got to work with that part because that's a split part of them that really uses anger and aggression as a protective means to protect their system. Uh, and you do parts work to help that individual. But that could be anger and aggression, could be severe anxiety, could be severe depression, could be uh, a part that's very critical of them, that is always abusing them. These parts are all created, in, often in early childhood, pre-10, pre-10 years old, as protective mechanisms to help you cope with what the environment is giving you. Mm. Wow. So would you say then that um, there's a few things, we're going on a few different uh, pathways here and I want to tie it all together. But the first thing I noticed there is that it, it sounds, and correct me if I'm wrong here, I'm going to assume, but correct me if I'm wrong, that the reason that one experiences trauma is because of other people and, and a lack of safety around people. They then create these parts of themselves to then cope with them um, it could be, you know, social anxiety, uh, it could be anger, it could be outrage, it could be antisocial behaviors, or in a more positive scenario, it could be, you know, pro-social behaviors like, uh, um, uh, you, you know, feeling comfortable in one's body and being confident. like they've had so many positive experiences with that. They trust people. And it sounds like the, the end goal of, and I know it's different for everyone, but again, correct me if I'm wrong here, the end goal of healing trauma is to end in a place of, uh, natural kindness, natural compassion for each other. Is that accurate? Yeah, 100%. You know, so, so <laughs> parts get created, uh, usually pretend. You still get parts being created uh, older than that, but you've got to think about uh, our, our personal personalities are forming under the age of 10. And if uh. we have a loving, caring environment that we're in where we feel safe, then all our parts uh, get integrated with us. And by integration, I mean they feel like us. They're still separate parts, but we all work together as a team. We all communicate. We all have compassion and care for each other. And, and when you experience really severe 
trauma as a child, especially under 10, and it's chronic and repeated, then because of that chronic and repeated trauma, your, your parts actually stay separated. They don't yeah. become integrated in form and they actually feel dissociated or disconnected to you. And they do that and they, they stay separated to protect you. Right? And, and that is really the form when your parts early on as a child, your personality doesn't integrate and you have these parts that are separate. Those parts stay dissociated or disconnected as a solution to deal with the trauma you've experienced, which, which is then, you know, goes on to be diagnosed later on as dissociative identity disorder or what used to be called multiple personality disorder, which, which I'm not a huge fan of. I'm not a huge fan of calling it dissociative identity disorder. I actually think it's dissociative identity solution. It is the mm. natural solution to extreme trauma. And it is something you don't get a choice at. If you are experiencing trauma, and trauma is something very subjective. And, yeah. and subjectively, it is, it, it's a distressing event that is beyond your capacity to cope and in which you feel helpless. So if, uh. so if an event is beyond your capacity to cope and it is helpless, and it is so distressing that you can't handle it, a part will be created to help you manage that. And I've got a slide later on that we can talk about where I sort of explain that and why that works and how it works uh, mm. in terms of why those parts are created and they're there to help. So it is a neurological process where a part of you splits off to help you carry the burden and deal with some of that trauma and distress. And that could involve multiple parts, not just one. And those parts... So, then, sorry, go for it. Those parts then get carried through with you uh, for your life, right? And so, so the other thing is that, especially dissociative identity disorder, that is really a childhood disorder. It's a disorder that starts in childhood, but we really don't diagnose it until adulthood because we're, we're not that great at spotting it or seeing it. And when parts get created, for example, if, if, if dad's beating you up and you're six years old and it's beyond belief and horrific, but then the part that gets created to help you deal with that, that six-year-old part of you, actually stays six. And, and you might be 30 or 40, but that part is still six. It gets trapped in time. And so when you respond as a 30-year-old to someone who is getting angry or you're aggressive, your response might be way beyond what is justified or needed for that event. It's because six-year-old has kicked in. Does that sort of make sense? It makes perfect sense. Yeah. And it's a it's a... It's equally sad as it is um, inspiring hope, I think, because I think, and I, I want to distinguish something there. I think that these disorders in that word, right? I think that everyone has them to a degree, right? There's there's no childhood that was perfect in the sense of, oh, like from A to Z, everything was perfect because as children, we are the center of the universe. We think we are at least, and we take everything super duper seriously. Like this one event here, that had no meaning whatsoever as far as it goes from a cognitive point of view means everything to us because we respond with emotion first and with a center point of view. So I think it's important to note that, that um, uh, and, and you can correct me if I'm wrong here as well, that the behaviors that we have and the ways of being in the world that we have that might be quote unquote disempowering or incorrect are actually quite normal for most humans. Yeah, they're quite normal. It's, and they're, they're for a lot of people functional. They help yeah. them cope and manage and adapt, you know. And yeah. we've all experienced trauma to some degree. You know, we've all experienced some distressing events, some more than others, you know. And, th and if those distressing events are not uh, are smaller and minimal, 
we have the functional capacity and resiliency to overcome those. It's when they're very distressing and it's where they're cumulative over the time and repeated that they have a more significant impact. Uh, and it can just be one event that really takes us off kilter. Yeah. Uh, and that's when you need some help helping resolve uh, uh, that trauma and that distress. And I think that uh, sometimes when it comes to trauma, it can become so bad that the self-awareness goes away around even knowing that you have it. So I guess the question is like, how can one identify if they've lived in that world for so long? And because we, you know, as humans, we experience the whole spectrum. We experience from, you know, insane amounts of peace of like, wow, I feel so peaceful. And then, you know, maybe the temptation to have that little bar of chocolate when you know it's bad for you. Not yeah. little bar, you have, you, you binge eat, right? So for example, you binge eat and you're like, oh, now I feel like crap. And Next day you feel like uh, feudalistic and the world sucks and da, 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 all these things. And then next thing you know, you have a bad sleep and it kind of leads to all these, these patterns that you might have in the, in the past yeah. or in the, the carriage in the future. So I guess the question is, it's like when someone is in that reality, how do they bring awareness to that feeling? Is it a process of like, hey, tune into your body? Is it something they see you about or like what, what, what's, what's surrounding that? Well, there's, uh, there's let's, let, you know what I think? Let's do, let's do that little mini presentation. Because this is the second Because I think let's talk a little bit about trauma, how trauma works, and then let's talk about, because what you're getting into, which is the most interesting part, is parts work. And mm-hmm. how do parts work? How do these parts of you, the part that likes eating chocolate, the part that likes drinking alcohol to cope, the part that yep. you know, is aggressive or angry, the anxious part, the people-pleasing part, how do you actually work with those parts to get yep. uh, some healing? Because for me, parts are fundamental. We all have parts. Yeah. Uh, whether those parts are a part of us, disconnected to us, dissociated from us, has, has an impact on how we work with them and how we deal with them. Uh, and for me, parts are fundamental to how we see ourselves and how we relate in the world. Because wow. the framework of, you know, where do you get self-love from? Where do, where do you get acceptance from is really with your parts. And if you can love your parts parts can love you, if you can accept your parts and parts accept you, that fundamental framework is actually the building block for self-worth. And that all comes from building that relationship, care, compassion, curiosity uh, with your parts. And and that is a building block that you do a whole lot of therapeutic work on. That's beautiful. Let's jump into it. Okay. Let's jump. So I'm going to talk first about uh, one of my first passions, which is EMDR. Uh, and I'm going to talk about EMDR. And, I'm going and to by the it. way, feel free to use me as an example if you wish. Well, I'm going to get you to do it with me. <laughs> Great, let's do it. <laughs> uh, so we won't do it let me, let me take a seat. Back. How I get someone to uh, think about there we go. All right, so, so I'm going to talk you through EMDR, which is eye movement, desensitization, and reprocessing. Yeah. Okay. Now, EMDR is really an eight-phase uh, therapeutic model, uh, and, and it goes from what most thera- therapies do, which is doing a, a really detailed client history, a formulation of what's going on, doing a treatment plan, but it's a really detailed trauma history. Then you do some psychoed and, and prep. So you do psychoed on how EMDR works, and we're, we're going to talk you through that today. And then you do preparation, which is really about grounding, 
uh, emotion stabilization. Don't do that for everyone, but I do that with a fair few people. And within that trauma identification, that's phase three, you're really doing a timeline of all the trauma someone's been through. And that could be very small things to very big things. Uh, and then you're picking one of those to then do in phase four some trauma processing. Uh, and we're going to do, and I'm going to talk you through how that works because it's such an interesting process. And then once you've got that to a zero distress level, you actually go and you install a very positive cognition. So if you, you know, you were, you were uh, assaulted by someone and you felt powerless and worthless, uh, you'd be processing all those negative cognitions and the trauma that went with it, and you'd be putting after that when that was, you know, fully processed and you had a zero distress rating, you'd put in a positive installation where, you know, I'm in control now, you know, I, I, I have worth. Uh, and then you'd, once that was installed, you'd move to phase six where you think about the distressing event and you just notice your body, is there anything left? And you'd process that. And then you'd close that off. And then the next session you have with the person, you would reevaluate, you go back to phase four. You, 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 you bring up that memory you've processed. Is there anything left? If there's nothing left, then you go to the next one, you repeat the process. Uh, and what I'm going to talk to you about is, is a little bit, how do you identify what, what is a trauma? And then how do you process it? And then we'll talk about parts. So right. we've already talked about what defines uh, a trauma, and that's any distressing experience that's beyond your capacity to cope and yep. where you feel helpless. So it is it is beyond my resources and I feel helpless. And, and that experience, that distressing event, actually activates a very specific neural processes and pathways. And, and those neural pathways uh, are very distinct to anything else. So a trauma memory is very distinct to other memories, right? So how does that work? So, so if we talk about the brain, so if I split your brain right down the middle, I'm just really pausing one second there, Andrew. Are you sharing something on the screen here? Oh, yeah. Can you see the brain? No, I can't see the brain. I can see your StreamYard section. When you're on that tab, you have to select the tab that you're on. Ah, great. All right. So this is, so if I was to cut your brain right down the middle, uh, this would be the, the, the middle view. And I'm really interested in the amygdala, which is this almond shaped part of the brain here in the middle. It's in the limbic system. And I'm interested in the hippocampus. And your amygdala is your, your alarm system. It's where fight, flight, freeze, and collapse live. Uh, and that alarm system works very, very closely with the hippocampus, which is that, that sort of backward C that comes around. And that backward C is really all about memory processing. That's the part we're really interested in. And the amygdala and the hippocampus work very, very closely together. So think about this. I'm going I'm to show you how different memories work. So Luke, think about, so we're, we're, we're filming on a Monday, today's Monday, go back to last Monday, what did you have for dinner? Uh, I had sweet potato, capskin, uh, white rice and chicken. <laughs> Sorry, is that the wrong answer? No, that's a good answer. <laughs> I have the... Classic ADHD, do you have the same thing every time? Yes. <laughs> go back three weeks on a Tuesday. It's the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have the same thing for lunch, breakfast? Yeah. All right, we'll go back to last Monday, right? So last Monday, yeah. you know what mm -hmm. you eat, right? It's a set pattern. But can you remember that exact meal? 
the one that you had last Monday? If I'm honest with you, um, I can, but only because on Monday nights I watch a specific TV series yeah. that links that memory to that. But if right. you said last Thursday, I wouldn't know. All right, so let's do. I would so, remember. Well, there was something novel, right? So something novel. That yes. So, yes. so let's go back uh, two Thursdays ago. So not last Thursday, but the Thursday before. Yep. Can you remember what you had for dinner then? Can you remember that exact meal? No, I can't. No. So if there's something novel, yep, yeah, you're going to remember. But normally, right, there's not that much going on on all those meals. So, so for someone listening, go back 10, 15 days, try and figure out what you had for dinner. So when you have dinner, usually it's not a big deal. So the amygdala doesn't get uh, activated. So the, the amygdala and the hippocampus work together and they process this memory into a semantic memory. And a semantic memory is very light. It's verbal. We have millions of them and they put them in the filing cabinet, right? And if you go back like four weeks ago, right, to a Thursday dinner four weeks ago, can you think of one? No, not at all. And how long ago does that four weeks feel? Um, if, if there were three options of, you know, immediate, medium, long-term, it'd be medium. It just yeah. feels like a distant in the past. Right. So when something isn't novel, when something isn't emotional distressing and it doesn't activate your amygdala, your amygdala and hippocampus do what they need to do. They process it into a semantic memory and it feels like it's in the past. Yeah. Right. And that memory is date stamped the past and you have millions in there, right? Whereas now I'm going to get you to go back to something that was distressing, childhood. You're not going to tell me what that childhood memory is. I'm just going to ask you the age. So go back to something that was distressing. Uh, the first thing that popped up, which I'm happy to share with you, I don't mind. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, the, the, the first immediate memory that popped up was I think when I was like seven, maybe eight mm -hmm. years old, and I was at uh, a friend's place and um, like a family friend's place, and I I I threw a swing at my sister's head, and it, like it, it gushed her, her eyebrow open and just bleeding everywhere, and I felt I remember feeling awful after I did that, but I remember feeling like I didn't want to appear feeling awful because I didn't want to be emotionally vulnerable, but um, mm -hmm. I remember that. That's the first right. thing that came up. So that so so that was how many years ago was that when you were seven? Well, I'm 29, so 21, 22 years ago. Great. So that was 21 years ago. Did you backtrack, or did it just pop in? Really? Um, it popped in after I'd say one or two seconds. That's the first thing that popped in my mind. Yeah, great. And when you think about it now, really go into that memory. Okay. How clear is it? It's pretty clear. It's pretty clear. And can you yeah. feel, can you feel it or not really? Um yeah, I can. I can feel it, but not in the same emotional intensity, but I can oh. certainly feel it for sure. Yeah. So, so what you just described, that was an excellent example. Thanks, Luke. That was a distressing no. event, right? It happened when you were seven, 21 years ago. Because that was such a distressing event, your amygdala got activated and the potential action of that amygdala increased 
And when your amygdala gets activated, it stops normal processing with the hippocampus and it stops it from sending it into semantic memory. And this is an evolutionary process. So when, when you're distressed, it stops that processing. And what happens is your amygdala and hippocampus work to send it into episodic memory. And episodic memory is an episode in time. And what that episodic memory does, it, it encapsulates all the images, all the feelings, all the thoughts, uh, all the, the smells, physiological sensations you are experiencing at that time. And what it does is it stores those in the safe. And normally it stores them in the safe and, it, and you can close that safe shut. But oftentimes, if you've had something distressing happening or a lot of things happen, that safe will be open and you will be elevated all the time. And that memory, if we went to someone who had, you know, a sexual assault or, or something very, very uh, serious, what happens is that distressing memory uh, gets stored as episodic memory and it gets date stamped, present and active. It doesn't get a date stamp of past. And there's an evolutionary reason for that. So imagine we go back 300,000 years to Neanderthal. Uh, and Neanderthal is walking with another Neanderthal in the forest, in the woods. And, and, and in the forest, uh, Neanderthal sees their Neanderthal friend get killed by a lion. If, if there was nothing uh, neural that would occur, then that memory would be sent into semantic memory. And three, four, five weeks later, six months later, the next time you saw a lion, you'd be thinking, ah, oh, why is that lion not okay? We needed a better mechanism that would activate that memory straight away so that if you saw a lion, emotionally you would get activated, the amygdala would get activated, and you'd run into fight, flight, freeze. So it helps us with our survival to have a separate mechanism that stores distressing events. And that's what episodic memory is about. And, and you know, Francine Shapiro sort of figured all, all of this out. She's the inventor of EMDR, uh, invented this in early 1980s, was really uh, vilified when she sort of figured all this out and, and came to these conclusions. Uh, got a whole lot of support with, with research as, as it evolved over the 30, 30 plus years that it's been around. Uh, and Stickgold in the early 2000s argued the case that it's these episodic memories uh, and the accumulation of these episodic memories that actually cause your symptoms. So they cause the symptoms of PTSD, uh, in some cases depression, anxiety, and, uh, and a number of other things. And by resolving and processing these memories, and by processing them, we're trying to move them from episodic memory into semantic memory. So they lose their emotional valence, their distress. And mm. it's by shifting those memories across that you actually uh, reduce and resolve your symptoms. Does that sort of make sense? It makes, it makes perfect sense. So let's talk about the, um, just to tie this all together for the listeners and for myself, how does this look like in day-to-day -day life and what effect on the body and the mind and one's life can this have over the long term? Um, we talk about yeah. stress very generally, 
but I imagine, you know, like when there's an undertone and I understand episodic memory might be more about, um, I might just go back to the other screen here. Hold on a second. Yeah, so I'll come back to that in a second. I'll show you how EMDR works. So you're right. So, so those symptoms uh, mm-hmm. can have small impacts, big impacts. They, they, can, yep. they can be from I'm not sleeping. I can't sleep. I'm, I'm awake 4 a.m. every morning to I am excessively drinking to numb the pain to I am hypervigilant, aroused. I am anxious all the time. I am feeling depressed and exhausted. Um, or I'm getting flashbacks. I have a startle response. I am uh, reactive to anything in the environment. So it could be from very small things to very big things. Uh, and the more distress and trauma the impact it has on you, the more debilitating uh, the impact on the individual. And mm. the bigger the impact on their functioning day to day. Because not only does it impact them, but then impacts their ability to engage. To, to be social, to work, to relax, all of these things get impacted, right? So it's not just the impact on you, but the impact on what you do, the impact on others. It, it has a far-reaching effect. Yeah. And why does, uh, if I said to you, well, Andrew, they're just bad habits. I need to rewire them. I need to read uh, books on habits and I need to run my, my bad habits down and I need to just for 30, 40 days, try to rewire my habits. Why yeah, does or right. why doesn't that work? Yeah, that doesn't work, A, because you've got, because that trauma, and we'll come to this with the part section, trauma is often experienced by you, but because it's so distressing, it'll often be co-experienced or held by a part of you. Right. And that part that gets traumatized uh, is holding onto that trauma for you. All right? Sometimes it, it leaks out, sometimes it, uh, it, it expresses all the time sometimes it's holding it back but those parts with you need to resolve that trauma together if you try and and do a whole lot of behaviors without involving or engaging your parts you're not going to get very far so for example if you're if you're you know you know i had one client who was sexually assaulted at at night and were repeatedly sexually assaulted so every time they went to bed as an adult this happened when they were you know, between five and 10. So they're, they're 50 now. Every time they go to bed, they shiver and shake. They are having a distress response. It doesn't matter how many sleeping strategies you, would you read. It doesn't matter how many meditations you listen to. It doesn't matter how much medication you take. That response is not going to resolve unless you've done the trauma work with the part and you. Uh, Only uh. by resolving that trauma from that event will the shaking the the distress of you going to sleep resolve. Can you give us an example that's less severe so people can relate to it that haven't been through that before? Like let's say, for example, use myself as an example right now. So one of the bad habits that I have is, um, and I say quote unquote because it depends how you interpret it, but is uh, when dinner time comes, I've been working hard all day, Mm -hmm. I like to indulge in, um, like uh, these little vegan snacks, these little vegan chocolate bar things. And I noticed that when I have them, I don't sleep as well. Um, and it could be for multiple reasons. It could be, you know, underlying stress throughout the day affecting my gut health, which then affects my sleep and, you know, the cycle continues. But I know when I don't have that, that it's a net positive for me. But I 
you know, it's, it's, and I didn't have it yesterday, but for the most part, I'll go out of my way, no matter where I am to go to a health food store, to grab one of those. doesn't matter how much it costs or how much it, you know, like how much work there is to do. I'll always find a way to do it. Um, and that might be an example of a smaller thing, which might have, you know, the, the iceberg underneath might be large, who knows? Um, but can we use an example like that and, and how that might affect, um, or how you might move through that or how that might affect one's life? Or is it just a harmless bad habit? Well, uh, reaffirm no my bad behaviors, please. Well, there's no such thing <laughs> as a, a harmless bad habit. There's no some, such thing as a harmful bad habit. They're all habits, right? And, and they're all really related to parts and there are no bad parts. This is a, a Richard Schwartz framework that all parts are good. And, and that part of you, that indulgent, I deserve this. I, I, I've, I've reward, I need a reward. I, I, I'm a good person. I've, I've earned my keep. That indulgent part of you is a positive part of you. It's rewarding you. But it's actually in conflict with another part that is saying, don't do this. It's going to be bad for your sleep. It's costing <laughs> you money. Well, you're doing this. So you have parts in conflict. Everybody has yeah. parts in conflict, right? And this conflict actually causes a lot of distress. And what you need to do is do parts work where you talk to both of those parts, especially the indulgent part, because that indulgent part has a job to do and it yeah. is determined to do that job, right? And so that, that part would have developed at some point to, to help and assist you cope with distress. And what you want to do is have a chat to that part and say, great, you're helping me with this indulgence to, to do this. And the way you do this in parts work is you, you create, uh, an environment where you can go meet your parts. And we'd go meet your, you know, indulgent part. We'd go meet the part that is annoyed about you buying. We'd go meet <laughs> the funny part. We'd meet your, you know, entrepreneurial part that likes to, to create podcasts and do all those things. All of these different parts of you are actually all come together to make up who you are. And so yeah. in the space where we go and meet these parts, you then go have conversations with your parts. And you figure out, well, what do you do? What's, what's your job? What's the job of this indulgent part? And we'd have a chat to that part. And then we'd figure out uh, a way to work with that part to see if it would negotiate a, a change in that behaviour. So this is not an issue of willpower, right? If willpower was the solution, then we'd have no fat people in the world. We'd have everybody doing things really well because willpower is what people use to try and lose weight, to try and break a habit. But it often ends up not working because you're going against an internal part of you. And you need mm. to build a relationship with that part. Why are you doing this? What's the function of it? And then working with that part with care, comp compassion, curiosity, to try and create a new agreement of working with that part. There is no getting rid of that indulgent part. Once you have a part, you always have that part but it's the relationship you build with that part and how you work with that part. Wow. It's like having an intimate relationship. Yeah. Well, what you find I, is that people who have great relationships with their parts are much better at having relationships with people. People who don't wow. have great relationship with parts don't have great relationships. If you have parts that are dissociated, no connection with your parts, ignore all parts, you'll find that that person is very lonely and isolated. Mm. But what you do with your parts has an everyday impact. Wow. Right? Yeah. So you wouldn't, you, oh, you wouldn't be reading any books. You wouldn't be reading any, you know, how to break habits. All of that relies on willpower and, and you. But it ignores 
what is going on uh, with your parts. And unless you do something with your parts, you won't create the change that you want. Yeah. So I guess it goes back to what Carl Jung calls individuation, which is the integration of all one's parts to make a swing human being, like a, how a human being should be. Well, technically, well, there's, there's this odd thing. There's, there, there's integration of parts, right? So uh, yeah. integration of parts, but integration of parts is, is the worst terminology you can use. It, it's a little bit like uh, how the word theory has a scientific role and an everyday use. And if I say yeah. an everyday use, I've got a theory, that means I've got an idea. But in scientific terms, theory means it's a proved theory. It's got all the evidence it needs. And I think integration works in the same way. Integration in general use means integrated as one. Whereas integrated within a parts framework or within a psychology framework actually means working together. Doesn't mean becoming one. All your parts will be separate, but working with you communicating with you on the same page and allowing you to manage and reinforcing when they need is you becoming integrated. It's not everybody mm. becoming one. You've still got all those parts, but it's how you work with them. So integrated means we're all working together, we're all on the same page, we're all communicating. There's care, compassion, love for all those parts. Disconnected means they're disconnected to me. I don't want to know about them. I'm pretty annoyed with them. Uh, and and they can influence me. They can be co-conscious, making me do things like go to the cupboard and eat some chocolate or a vegan snack, or can make me go <laughs> some alcohol. I'm conscious. I know that I'm doing it, but there is a force that is making me do it. And, mm. and all the, at the other extreme end of that spectrum is dissociated parts, where if they're dissociated, yeah, wow. that means they can take over. And me as a person, I go into an amnesic state, and that that part just takes over, takes over my body, and controls what I'm doing. And that full range is seen, right? So, so parts can be uh, integrated all the way up to dissociated. Yeah. Wow. So let's use an example um, and tell me what, why this worked and why it didn't, right? So I, I started drinking when I was 14, 15. Yeah. And in Australia, that's quite normal, yeah. right? Normal-ish. And I, uh, for me, I had really bad social anxiety. And I was like, that was the way that I would remedy that. I had this this part of me, like, there you go, this part of me that mm. was like, loved to socialize, loved to, you know, go out and chat with people, very extroverted. And this other side of me that was uh, really socially anxious, like really shy and like, oh, I don't want kind of these two parts going at once, right? As you mentioned there before. And the way that I would bring that part of me out that was social or social and bubbly and, you know, outgoing was to drink. Mm. Um, the, the dark side of that was, or the other side of that, rather, was that A, it, uh, it removes inhibition. So that part of you would go to the absolute nth degree of that, which means you won't just be social, you'll be out there and ridiculous and maybe cause some drama. Then also alcohol is bad for you, right? When it's done, especially binging, like, you know, every single weekend and whatnot. So then I, I, try, I knew in my mind this whole time that I needed to, to stop drinking. I knew that it was bad. I knew that I didn't want to spend all this money. And then, you know, fast forward 10 years later when I'm in my early 20s, I'm going out and partying and, you know, it was, it was normalized because of people that were doing it all the time. And then I was part of the Australian culture and, you know, bendering all weekend and all these things. And then, then I read this book. It was called um, by Alan Carr, The Easy Way to Quit Alcohol. Yeah. And I tried a bunch of stuff before that. You know, I'd, I'd seen um, uh, multiple different people and, you know, try these different things and, you know, at least it felt that way at the time. I read this book and then it was like, at the start of the book, 
and this I'm, I'm discovering what it is now, but I'd love to hear your thoughts as well. At the start of the book, it said, um, I'm not going to ask you to stop drinking. In fact, please keep drinking. Please carry on drinking. Like, don't, don't worry about stopping right now. In fact, at the end of this book, I'm going to ask you to drink. <laughs> like, okay, that's weird. Great marketing point, but really weird. And I read this book and it started to explain, it started to give an airtight argument as to why people drink and, you know, and how it begins. And he uses the example of the pitcher plant, which is uh, this, this circular plant and it has this like sugary saliva down the middle of it and flies would go in there and they'll start uh, having a sip of the, 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 sugary, the sugary water. And they get down further, it gets more and more sugary to the point where they get down to the bottom of the plant and they're consumed by the plant. And he uses as analogy for alcohol when you start drinking at, um, you know, events here and there, then you start drinking for, you know, oh, I'm going to go out for lunch, have a beer. Then you start having it, you know, wine with, uh, you know, uh, brunch. Next thing you know, like it's a, a huge part of your life. It becomes, you slowly go down to the bottom until you're in that space. And another thing he says as well is that, um, you know, when you go to social events, it's natural to be awkward. It's natural to be socially anxious. It's naturally, it'd be a little bit weird. Like when you go to a kid's party, there's like maybe one or two kids that go up and have no inhibitions. They're like, they're crazy or whatever. But most kids are like, Ooh, like, you know, on their, on their mom's leg, like, Oh, what's going on here? And they take some time to socialize. And by the time I got to the end of that book, not only had I not wanted to drink the alcohol that he said to drink at the end as the last drink to really, he, he said, I want you to be present with the drink. And I want you to drink like a bottle of vodka or whatever it is that your preference is. I want you to be present with it and feel how it tastes, feel how it feels in your body, really become present with it and drink the whole cup. I poured myself some gin, the uh, Goku gin. They used to love drinking, not by itself, but used to love drinking nonetheless. And I smelt it straight. I'm like, oh, I don't want that. And then from that point forward, it was 2018, at the end of October, 2018, I think October 28th, actually, um, I stopped drinking. And from there, I've never, I've had maybe uh, half a cup of rosé to try because a friend asked me to try their rosé. It's like, oh, I didn't want this. So, I, and, I, and I would love to hear your thoughts. Like, why did that work as opposed to me attempting all these different things, like buying courses, seeing people and all these stuff? And I think it's because I accepted it first and foremost, but I'd love to hear your thoughts. Why did that work as opposed to everything else I tried before? Well, when you, when you think about that book now, yeah. what's, what's the message that stood out the most? Um, that <laughs> nice, um, that my social anxiety and how I felt in social, in social situations was normal. Right. Firstly, the same thing from what you said, right? So reading yeah. that book actually caused you to have an internal dialogue with anxious part to say, Hey, yeah. this is normal. We don't need yep. alcohol part to shut this down because it's normal. There's a whole lot of people who feel anxious. So what happened is anxious part that was socially anxious got normalized and said this is normal we don't need coping with alcohol part to come in anymore yeah so, so, so the parts were actually involved in you reading that book and there was a normalization and an acceptance that it's okay to have this part so you yeah. stop you stop getting angry and annoyed at this part yeah which then required alcohol part to come in and subdue it you said it's normal. So if I feel it, it's okay. Well, then also as well, then that makes perfect sense. And I think then what happened as well is um, about four months after that, mm -hmm. I've been for, for so long wanting to go to these like sober events, these conscious events. And I just happened to go to one of these events. And then I, I, 
it's called ecstatic dance, right? It's where you dance with no structure, no routine. You just let it flow. Like you just, a bunch of people in a room just start dancing and you just kind of like just start flowing with the rhythm, moving, hang on a move. I remember feeling so awkward in my head. Like this is so weird, but I made a commitment to myself, which was I'm going to just keep dancing until, until I feel free. Eventually it will happen. Like it's going to, it's going to have to happen eventually. Yeah. And I just, and I just let go. And then I started to socialize with people and I realized this other part of me, I keep saying part now, it's interesting. I saw this other part of me that was naturally social, naturally extrovert, naturally very confident, naturally very outgoing, naturally very, um, yeah, just, just full of life, full of joy, full of happiness. And it came to that experience. And I think that's the, the, the part that you mentioned there, one of the steps is which is you create a new pattern. Like that's, and I think Neil Strauss talks about this in one of his books in um, The Truth. He goes through this whole process of removing, not removing, but rather integrating, whatever the word is, his trauma where he's in a de-stressed state. There's a, there's a word for it, but he, he remembers laying in his bed and he just felt completely empty. Like his resting heart rate went down massively. He just felt like this, this freeness. And he, um, and he built something up from there. He started to build himself again into this new being. He's like, okay, now it's time to stack on this new way of being. Like, well, without a paths framework, you can create new paths. Yeah. You know, with the agreement of paths, you can say, I want to create a social, extroverted version of me because that is me. Yeah. You know, you can, and so paths can be created, you know, and you mm. can create those parts you know so, so for example you can create the part that's social if you if you didn't get you know uh, a parent the parent that you needed that was loving caring you can create that part for yourself to do that for you and for your parts so you can you can create parts to 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 help create a more fuller you and, mm. and that's part of the, the deal with parts work yeah. and i think that it's probably it's obviously better in a clinical setting but for those at home who don't have access to it, the resources, the t- uh, not time, but the resources, the money, whatever it might be, how does one go about doing that by themselves? Well, I think uh, one, one of the nicest books I've read on that is No Bad Parts by Richard Schwartz. And, yeah. um, and that book not only does a, a, a wonderful explanation of parts and how parts work, but it's got some really nice visualizations and meditations with parts to help wow. you manage and address those parts. Um, you, know, you know, IFS is, you know, internal family systems uh, is just I'm a familiar with that. Yeah. And so Richard Schwartz developed that. You know, prior to that, there was really ego state therapy and, and defense work. So, it's, so this is a long line. And I think Richard was, was the first one really who had uh, a very unique way of working with parts in a very caring, compassionate way, a, a little bit stronger than, than ego state therapy did. And yeah. his framework of No Bad Parts uh, and his book, No Bad Parts, is a great place to start. Uh, and that book will help you map out your parts, what parts do I have, help you understand how to have a dialogue that's caring and compassionate with parts, uh, and then do some strategies around how to work with those parts. Yeah. Yeah. Great place to start. Then ideal- awesome. And then ideally if they can reach out to you and, and do a session with you. Well, any psychologist who's done parts work and trauma work, and really you've got to combine the two. So, so for yep. me, what I found is, is doing parts work is, is a great uh, place to start. Uh, but then yep. you've got to do trauma work, which is where EMDR comes in, 
with the individual and the part. Because often parts will hold trauma. Uh, and especially with more severe cases, parts will still be in trauma mode. It will still be active. They still think they're in the, in, in the, in the time zone at that time where something awful was happening to them. And so, so doing the work with them and resolving their trauma has a massive impact in helping calm your whole system down. So doing parts work and trauma work is really what I've found to be the most effective. Love it. Now, if you go see a chiropractor, um, the right chiropractor, they will say that often uh, the reason you're experiencing health issues or the reason you're experiencing emotional, is- emotional issues is because of your spine mm-hmm. and you have subluxation in your spine, inflammation in parts of your spine, which affects your nervous system and so forth. If you go to a, you know, a surgeon, they'll probably try and give you a lobotomy of some sort. Um, if you go to, you know, whatever field it is, they will tell you that that's the thing that's going to fix or, you know, heal you, what it might be. Do you feel like this is the only solution for someone to work through and move through their trauma? Um, or do you feel like there's other ways as well? Well, well for me, in terms of uh, trauma work, uh, really I go by, again, my philosophy is I only do treatment and trauma that I've used and I know works for me. You know, so I can only talk from that point of view. Uh, and for me, I've tried a lot of therapies. You know, I started my life off as a CBT therapist. Then I went on and did some, uh, got trained in ACT, acceptance and commitment therapy. Then I did DBT, dialectical behavior therapy. Then I did schema therapy. And then I landed on ER and then parts work. And so I've gone through all, all the therapy, therapies you can, you can imagine to land on the two that have worked best for me. And, and the ones that work best, uh, I feel, for my clients. And it is often the case that trauma is embodied physically, right? So especially with my more severe cases where people have got dissociated parts, you know, I've got one client at the moment who is having non-epileptic seizures because of the trauma. You know, I've got one person who faints and is paralysed. I've got another person uh, who has... Uh, body numbing and sensations. So you can get really severe physical problems because of your trauma, you know, and you really need to do, you know, the medical investigations to make sure, and I recommend that first. But when medically that's been ruled out, then then trauma work is the best way to go, you know. But with all the people that I'm seeing with all of those physical symptoms, we always do the medical work first. Get it checked out, make sure right? Because there's nothing worse than seeing someone when really there's something medically underlying. And so you always want to rule that out first, then uh, do the trauma work. So, so I'm a fan of people seeing their chiropractor. I'm a fan of someone seeing, you know, medical professionals. Get all of that ruled out. Do that and your trauma work, you know? And if, uh, yeah, that, that would be my framework. And um, for yourself, and then we can, we can wrap up. Um... What is your journey out of this? Like, where, where, where did you, why did you start this? Like, for yourself, your own healing journey, where did it start and begin if you wanted to share? Well, well I think for me it was, uh, you know, for me it was really about feeling lonely in the world, you know, and feeling a bit disconnected, you know, and why? Why was that the case? And looking at attachment frameworks and, and trauma frameworks and nothing bad had ha- ever happened to me. But it was all these little mini traumas, mini events that had had a cumulative impact that ended yeah. up uh, making me feel that way and, and a little bit disconnected 
you know, and, and, and that's what started me on that journey and looking at what could help resolve that. And I tried a lot of things to help resolve that. And it was really EMDR and parts work that had the biggest impact on me personally. You know, I tried CBT uh, and a lot of the extensions of that, ACT and DBT and schemas. And I use all of those in my therapy today. But at a core, it's really EMDR and parts work uh, that have really shifted mm. that feeling uh, and that internal feeling and that feeling of just feeling more calm in the world and more calm in me. Mm. Wow. I need that. <laughs> we'll have a chat about it afterwards. That sounds awesome. Yeah. Um, what would be really cool, I think, a really cool idea, just a side note, um, it would be awesome to uh, uh, maybe I could, for everyone that's watching and anyone that watches in the future, I could uh, document the whole thing and like see where I am before and after. I've done a bunch of different stuff. I've done neurofeedback. I've done um, a few different things here and there on the way. But maybe it might be worthwhile documenting it and seeing what happens. That'd be pretty cool. Great idea. Yeah. Awesome. Cool. Well, it's been a pleasure to chat with you. Um, yeah. The Reed the Clinic, how can people get in contact with you if they want to and, and what's the process there? Well, you can go to the Reed Clinic website. You know, uh, yep. I, I'm, you know the Reed Clinic is, is the home to 26 psychologists. It's, it's the biggest practice on the Central Coast. So it's really, you know, if, you, if you're on the Central Coast, you, we do stuff on, online as well. Uh, but if you go to our website, you know, thereadclinic.com, uh, that is the best way to, to get us and you can see all the, uh, the people that call the Reed Clinic home. Um, yeah, that'd be great. Thanks. That's beautiful. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks so much for joining. I really, really appreciate it. Thanks for the time.